Tonight in your Bible, we would invite you to turn to Acts 13. We'll be reading from verses 14 through 41. If you're using the Bible in your pew, this is found on page 1270. Also, we'll be referencing Lord's Day 51 of our Heidelberg Catechism in the Forms and Prayers book. You find this on page 256. Now, we're continuing to expound the teachings that we find in the Word of God that we have historically summarized for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're dealing with that model prayer that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples, moving through it petition by petition. And we come tonight to the petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, the Scripture passage that we're going to be reading, uh, you might say, is a sermon uh, of the Apostle in which he lays forth in the basic structure of apostolic preaching uh, the person and the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then he issues at the conclusion of the sermon uh, the call to repentance and faith with the promise of the forgiveness of sins. So we begin reading in Acts 13, uh, beginning at verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about forty years he put up with their ways in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that he gave them judges for about four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet and afterward they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent." For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up from him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your day, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And thus far for now, our reading from Scripture. We then turn to our catechism, Lord's Day 51, which asks in question 126, what does the fifth petition mean? And the answer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, means because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us, just as we are fully determined, as evidence of your grace in us, wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us our debts. Or, in other words, forgive us our sins are the most important words that a human person can ever mutter. Eternity itself hangs in the balances depending upon whether or not an individual in sincerity says, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. But there's also another weighty part to this petition. The most alarming qualifier, if you will, is put on this petition. Forgive us our debts as as we forgive our debtors. I want to acknowledge from the outset, and this is not some type of an emotional manipulative tactic. I want to acknowledge from the outset that when we come to this petition, we come to this petition with fear and trembling. Because if we really grasp something of the content of these words, which our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Then we will pray with confidence, but also with fear and trembling. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We turn our attention tonight and the time allotted to us to this theme, forgive us our debts, noticing, first of all, the need for forgiveness, and then secondly, the basis for forgiveness, and then thirdly, the evidence, 
the evidence of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Notice tonight the need, the basis, and the evidence of forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. Why why should we pray this petition? Why do we need to pray this petition? Why do we need to ask initially and repeatedly all throughout our life for the forgiveness of our debts or the forgiveness of our sins? It is, first of all, in light of our state as sinners. It's important for us to know ourselves. Self-knowledge is crucial for a proper life. And self-knowledge is crucial also for a proper death. Know thyself has a certain biblical note to it. How do we come to know ourselves? Especially in regards to our spiritual state. We dare not trust our own evaluation of ourselves. You can think of the medical arena. Are there not times in which we believe that all is well in our body? And maybe we perhaps at times have a suspicion in the back of our minds that might indicate that something is amiss. But even then, oftentimes we suppress that suspicion. But when the test results come, or when the blood work comes, and the doctor definitively says there's something wrong, then we come to a proper self-knowledge. Spiritually speaking, we have to submit to the revelation of the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us who we are. Human beings created in the image of God, yes. Of infinite value and worth, yes. But also, Scripture confronts us with the reality that we are poor sinners. Notice that's the language of the catechism. Because of Christ's blood, do not impute to us poor sinners that we are. And we might be tempted to say, well, well, that's just historical, archaic language. That's language from the 16th century. That's language before rationalism, before modernism, before humanism. That's language before the Enlightenment, before the modern era, before the Industrial Revolution, before all of the advances in society and economics. But what saith the Scriptures? For example, Psalm 51, verse 5, David speaks for all of humanity when he says, Behold, I was brought forth an iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Evil remains even after the work of grace, even after regeneration, even after the new birth. So that to, again, paraphrase Martin Luther from the Protestant Reformation from the 16th century, uh, we, we have two, so to speak, principles alive within our soul. There is that, that new life, yes, for which we are thankful to God, but there remains still the old man. And so when Paul writes underneath inspiration, Romans 7, which is not prior to his conversion, but rather subsequent or after he had experienced the converting, regenerating grace of God. He says in Romans 7 verse 18, for I know, notice Paul had a certain self-knowledge by the way of the Scriptures and by the way of the enlightened work of the Holy Spirit. I know that in me that is in my flesh 
Nothing good dwells. And I want to ask you, do you know that? About yourself? That in your flesh, that in your human nature, uh, apart from God's work of grace, that, that left to yourself, Nothing good dwells. Notice Paul does not say this about the Corinthians, you know, in Corinth, the unbelievers. He didn't say, you know, I know those wicked Corinthians, there's nothing good in them. He doesn't say this about the Roman culture. He didn't say, I know in the Roman culture there's nothing good. The Colosseums, the amphitheaters. Paul says, I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And out of our state as sinners come our actual actions of sins. Psalm 51, again, the author David in verses 2 and 3 prays this petition, which in essence is really forgive us our debts. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Transgressions, sins, thoughts, inclinations, actions produced by our heart, exercised by the thoughts of our mind, the inclinations of our will, uh, the, the actions of our hands, our eyes, our feet that are contrary to the holy law of God. Transgressions which include sins of omission when we omit or when we fail to do that which we should do and, and sins of commission when we do that which is forbidden. And as the psalmist says elsewhere, if we should begin to number our transgressions. None of us would be left standing in the presence of God. And now we don't just simply stress these truths to berate ourselves in some type of sadistic exercise, but rather to drive home the need for forgiveness. Know thyself. As a poor sinner who sins. That's why repeatedly there must come forth from the Christian this petition forgive us our debts. But now pause for a moment and ask yourself upon what ground or what basis. Dare we ask an infinitely holy God to forgive us our sins? Boys and girls, have you, ever, have you ever gone maybe to your parents or maybe your grandparent, maybe a teacher, maybe even the principal at school, and, and you had to ask for something? And maybe you were a bit nervous, and so you thought, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to word this? 
And when I ask for this, what am I going to say to try to convince them to give it to me? Upon what basis are we going to say to an infinitely holy God, forgive us our debts? This is our second point, if you're following along, the basis for forgiveness. And notice that it is entirely based upon the grace of God and the blood of Christ. Entirely. Entirely based upon the grace of God and the blood of Christ. We need to continually emphasize this because the tendency towards some type of legalistic spirit or moralistic spirit is always just outside the door of our heart. You see, we're tempted to think, forgive us our debts because we tried our best. Forgive us our debts because they're not as great as him or her. Forgive us our debts because they're really more weaknesses than sins, more addictions than rebellion. We might even excuse some of our sins by alluding to the fact that they're part of our heritage. Angry outbursts, we might just chalk up as saying that, well, we speak the truth like it is. We're unfiltered in our interactions with our fellow man. Sins, perhaps, of obstinacy, we might just simply attribute to the fact that, well, we're of a heritage that is known for their stubbornness. Maybe even the sin of an unforgiving attitude, we compliment ourselves and we say, I'm a man or I'm a woman of principle. When I take a stand, firmly I stand. When you come into the throne room of God and ask for the forgiveness of your sins, Plead nothing but grace. Unmerited favor. Unmerited love. Unmerited compassion. This alone is the basis. But thanks be to God that it is a sufficient basis. And I've said it before and I will attempt to continue to say it as long as the Lord gives me breath and a pulpit one of the great things that we need to know is the character of God in a biblical, balanced way. And yes, God is a God of righteousness, of holiness, of justice. But in a wonderfully balanced way, He is a God of grace, a God of compassion, a God of kindness, a God of mercy, a God who delights in showing favor to those who come to Him and in sincerity of heart say, forgive us our debts. I've often been struck when you read through the historical narrative of the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when you think of if we can say it this way, the busyness of his schedule, 
and the importance of his work. But as he made his way throughout the various communities in Israel, never once will you hear of him neglecting a poor sinner who cries out for mercy. Is that encouraging you tonight? Jesus, you might say, had places to be. He had things to do. But when the outcast of society, when the blind, the lame, the leprous, the unclean, when they said, Son of David, have mercy on us, he always delighted in showing mercy, in healing, and in forgiving. And I stress this because I want to make sure that no one who hears these words tonight ever wonders to themselves or ever questions among themselves or ever doubts within themselves. I, I, I wonder if Jesus will forgive me. He will if you sincerely ask for forgiveness based upon the grace of God. As that grace exercises itself through the blood of Christ. Forgive us our debts because of the sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul preaches as he walks through what we call biblical theology, uh, tracing uh, the covenantal workings of God with, with Abraham and, uh, and with the, the Moses and the law and the prophets and, and then the king and etc. He makes it all the way down to, to John the Baptist and then he emphasizes the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, his burial, his resurrection. And then he comes to what you say might be the punchline in verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. We have it elsewhere, for example, in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. There the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. How? How did, how did God forgive his people all trespasses? Because God is a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. Well, the answer is, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And we make no apologies for going with the orthodox historical understanding of emphasizing the vicarious atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I know these are big words, and we'll do our best to explain them. Vicarious means in the place of someone. How, how does God forgive me for my sins? Because Jesus Christ stood in my place condemned. That's how. Vicarious, in my place condemned he stood. 
And he didn't just stand in my place, but he shed blood. Blood of infinite worth. Because it was the blood of the Son of God incarnate. How can God forgive us? Because he looks upon our sin, but it is covered. And you can think of the the furniture in the tabernacle or the temple of the altar, the Ark of the Covenant. And upon it was the mercy seat. And on that mercy seat, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in. And what did he go in with? Excuses? No. Explanations for why Israel had done what they had done? No. Did the high priest go in and remind the Lord there in the holy place? Well, you know, I know we've fallen short some, but we're not like the Canaanites. He went in with blood. Blood. And he sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat. And it was a covering. And that points forward, of course, to the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in essence, we pray, forgive us our debts because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Who, according to John in 1 John 2, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins, the the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. May I ask you and plead with you tonight, is this your basis? When you confess your sins and ask for forgiveness? In essence, do you say, righteous God, forgive me for all of my sins because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But then there is the point that we must consider, thirdly, the evidence of forgiveness. Here I want to read from two passages, and I would encourage you to reference them in your own Bibles. The first one is from Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15. This is the conclusion of our Lord's instruction here on the model prayer. You notice if you turn there, and in the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1117, In verses 9 through 13, there is what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And and many a person memorizes this. I would guess that all of us who are uh, of some age have memorized this. But I wonder how many of us have memorized verses 14 and 15. It seems that our memory stops at the conclusion of verse 13. Verse 14 and 15 read as follows. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If you forgive men, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive men, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. 
and on the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter is established. So another passage we would refer you to is from Matthew 18. This one's a bit lengthier. It's found on page 1134. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible. Verse 23, Jesus gives a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a massive, massive, massive sum of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So the man who owed a massive amount was free from the legal financial liability to pay that money back. He was free. And why was he free? Because of the compassion of the master. Because the master was soft-hearted, had pity, was tender towards this man. Verse 28 continues the parable, but that servant went out and fell one of his fellow servants who owed to him a hundred denarii. Not really that much money. Certainly not in comparison to what he had owed the master. And when he found him, he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me. Notice the similarity, the parallelism. Verse 26, these are the exact same words. This man had gone to the king who he owed a massive amount. He said, have patience with me. Now his fellow servant who owes him a little bit of money uses the same words. You might think that this would trigger his memory and go, oh, wait a minute. I just asked the master of patience and he had patience. Now this man's asking me patience. But verse 30, he would not. He wouldn't. He defiantly refused to be patient with his fellow man. And he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? Just as I had pity on you. And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. And then notice these frightening words. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. We want to be clear that our forgiving of others is not the ground or the basis by which we earn merit, win over our own forgiveness. We, we've tried to emphasize in our second point, the basis for our forgiveness is only the grace of God through the blood of Christ. 
but a forgiving spirit towards those who sin against us. And when there is the occasion for words of forgiveness, that is an evidence, a testimony, a display of a spiritual condition of the heart that we have been forgiven. And this is a a necessary correlation. If we really, really, really understand what we've gone over in our first point, our state as sinners and our actions of sins, if we really understand, in sin I was conceived, and my transgressions are more than I can number, but God, who is infinitely holy and righteous, has freely out of His grace because of the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ, has forgiven me everything then yes, we recognize in this world we live among sinners. And there are times innumerable when individuals sin against us. Now, we are not talking here uh, just simply of offending someone, you know, forgetting someone's birthday, not opening a door for someone out of simple ignorance or forgetfulness. We're talking about sins. But you don't have to live very long in the company of sinners, which we all are, to have someone sin against you. This is a common experience. What then is our attitude towards those persons? I want to make a couple qualifications. If we are sinned against in a way that places us in immediate danger. A forgiving attitude does not neglect the responsibility to protect our own lives. Nor does a forgiving attitude and the expression of forgiveness automatically remove all consequences. For example, a murderer could sincerely ask for forgiveness and be forgiven and still be executed as a forgiven murderer. But the point that I want to address here is a bitter spirit, a bitter heart that won't forgive, that won't let go. Hebrews 12, verse 14 and 15. The author of the Hebrews writes, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. I am not thinking, I assure you, of any person in particular. But I have lived and served in the churches long enough to know that there are bitter, unforgiving people in Reformed churches who can quote the Lord's Prayer verbatim, 
but who never seem to tremble or reflect with this petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And at times, in my ministry, not in this congregation, but I have spoken with people and I have thought to myself, how do they dare? How do they dare ask God to forgive them in the same way as what they forgive others? Because they don't. They hold on to things, sometimes minor things, sometimes very inconsequential things, sometimes things from years ago, decades ago, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I'm not minimizing the pain that perhaps they went through in those experiences. But when you come to a passage such as this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We must be very, very, very clear. An unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. And those are difficult words to say. But I do not know how to reckon with Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, and Matthew 18, 23 through 35, and come to any other conclusion than to say that a heart that is unwilling to forgive is a heart that has not really experience the profound reality of forgiveness. So this Lord's Day has often hit me with two sides as you work through it and as you preach it. On the one hand, it is absolutely wonderful to be able to stand in the presence of sinners and say there is forgiveness free, complete forgiveness based upon the grace of God and the blood of Christ. But there's also the solemn obligation to proclaim that those who have experienced something of that forgiveness must and will find an evidence in their heart that they are also willing to forgive. And so I would conclude by encouraging all of us to examine our own hearts. Do you know yourself a sinner? Is your hope for forgiveness entirely the grace of God and the blood of Christ? And are you humble enough to forgive those who sin against you? Amen. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we tread upon the holy ground of your word, and we have spoken about glorious things, but also difficult things. And 
We pray, Father, that you would bless us now with the ability to reflect upon these truths and to have a spirit of the Bereans. Uh, We read that the Bereans were the most noble of listeners because they took all that they heard, even from the apostles, and they searched the Scriptures with one question. Are these things so? And so in the light of Psalm 51, in the light of Colossians 2, in the light of Matthew 6, and the light of Matthew 18, May we analyze this petition, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, and may we go to our homes and reflect in our minds and maybe even discuss among ourselves, are these things so? We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with the grace of a biblical self-knowledge, but may we also be blessed with the grace of knowing the sufficient atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And as we bask in the glory of your grace and mercy, may we then find our hearts softened with forgiving spirits one towards another. All of these things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.